The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? You doing all right? Yes. Hey, isn't our band amazing? Aren't they absolutely amazing? I'm, I'm blown away. I really am. Uh, I, I, th- I don't know if Tyler introduced, I don't know if you were in here earlier enough, but uh, Felicia and Lauren are new this morning, and um, we brought out the American Idol, true story, and so we're grateful that they are leading with us this morning, and Lauren was not an American Idol, but he was a spelling bee champion, and he is equally as awesome, and so we're glad that those guys are here. Hey, if you have a copy of the scriptures this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're in a series called Futures, and we kicked this series off last week. And we start the second week today, and I have the privilege of being able to preach for 25 minutes. Don't time me, all right? Uh, Because immediately following the sermon, we have baptism up. uh, When you go out the colony, take a left, and it's up the hill uh, like 20 steps. And so give it up for baptism. (laughs) Yes, it's an exciting morning. It's an exciting morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13, this is a series called Futures. Peter is writing a book, he's writing a letter to Christians in Asia Minor who are dispersed throughout the Roman Empire because they have experienced persecution. And so Peter is writing a book and he's saying, how can we live in the midst of animosity in the culture that we live in? And so he spent 12 verses explaining the wonderful grace of God in salvation, how through the resurrection of Jesus, we could be saved. And because we are saved, Jesus is keeping an inheritance for us. But not only that, he says the inheritance is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it will not fade away. But then he also says, not only is he keeping an inheritance for us, but he's keeping us for the inheritance. And then he goes on to talk about how uh, in the process of our struggles, uh, which is applicable to the people that Peter is writing to, it's also applicable to us today. He said in the midst of our struggles, God is going to refine us as gold through our struggles. So he spends 12 verses talking about the wonderful grace of God. And then he starts in verse 13. And from 13 until 21, he has three imperatives. And the imperatives kind of read as if Peter says, now that you understand the grace of God, here are three privileges, if you will. I've titled our sermon this morning, Three Privileges in an Underprivileged World. And so what he says is there, now that you understand the grace of God, there are three privileges, there are three rights, and there are three verbs in this passage that can help sustain life in the midst of struggles. And so if you have a copy of scriptures, 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning, starting in verse 13. Let's read together. The scripture says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but... Verse 15, just as he who called you is holy, here's the second imperative, be holy in all that you do. Verse 16, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, here's the third imperative, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Verse 18, for you know 
that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you and your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And then verse 21, through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you're so good. Father, thank you for the scriptures this morning. We don't come to you in an obligatory manner. God, we're not, um, God, we're, we're not obligated to come to you, Jesus. We come to you with open hearts, with gladness and full assurance of faith, God, that the scriptures have a word for us this morning. So in the midst of our struggles, and God, I'm confident there are many in this room. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us about the privileges that we have that can sustain us in the midst of our struggles. And everybody in the Colony Theater this morning said, amen, amen. The first privilege, and I got to hustle this morning, so bear with me. Um, the first privilege this morning that, that Peter lays out when he talks about how can life be sustainable in the midst of our struggles is found in verse 13. And Peter says it like this. In, in the NIV version of the scriptures, he says, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So what Peter does here is in verse 13, he reminds us all the way back in verse 3, he talked about a living hope that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so he comes back to that hope here in verse 13. And now rather than, um, rather than uh, an adjective to describe uh, who we are and what we've received, now Peter uses it hope in the form of a verb. And there's three main verbs in this passage, but he uses hope in the form of a verb. He says, set your hope. One version of the scripture says, hope fully. So we understand when Peter says, set your hope or hope fully in the form of a verb, we have to understand this, that hope is not, a, hope is not an action that we perform with our hands, right? Okay, we have to understand this. Hope is not a place that we go with our feet. Hope is not a word that we speak with our mouths. When we properly understand hope in the context of Scripture, hope is understood. Hope is understood to be an experience of the soul. An experience of the soul that Peter says that we should set our hope fully on the grace of God. So then if, if hope is not an action, like, like, like these are the three things, like, like sometimes we like, if you just tell me the three things I need to do to get from A to B, I like that instruction much better. But when it's an experience of the soul and Peter is now instructing us to hopefully, not to be moderate hopers, not to be mild hopers, not to be occasional hopers, but he's saying hope fully. But if that's an experience of the soul, then what activates the hope that Peter is talking about? Well, first of all, you need to understand that when God commands and when God delights, God delights not necessarily, first of all, in what we can do to please God, but he delights when we hope because of what he has first done for us. And so Peter's command is dependent on everything he's written about in the first 12 verses. The grace of God through Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead. So hope fully in this grace. God saves, then we hope fully in the grace, and that is the essence of the Christian 
experience. But Peter tells us to stir up the hope, and he does it in two ways. So how do we activate this hope? If it's an experience of the soul, not an action of the hands, a place we go with the feet, a word we speak with our mouth, how do we activate the hope that Peter's talking about? He gives us two ways, if you look at the scripture real quick. He says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. The, the ESV describes it like this. The ESV says, prepare your mind. The message says, uh, like, I love the message. The message says, put your mind in gear, okay? Now, now, the New King James or the King James, if you have that, the New King James says it in a way that's really hard to understand. And this is how it says it. It says, and gird up the loins of your mind, okay? I don't know what gird up means and I don't know what loins mean, but it sounds really odd, right? This is the essence. This is a literal rendering of what gird up your minds means. Now, we don't wear clothes today for the most part, and most of us don't wear clothes that go from shoulder all the way down to uh, our toes. Sometimes women wear, what do we call those, dresses? They're not sundresses because sundresses are like right here. But uh, like, like, like we have this picture like a tunic. That's the best way to describe it. Like a, a, a garment that goes from shoulder to feet. And so what Peter is saying is, is he's describing in a first century language that the people would understand, take your tunic, take your garment that goes all the way down to your feet and tuck that garment into your belt so that your feet can run freely. And so when Peter talks about um, prepare your minds and gird up the loins of your mind, the first way that he's talking about activating this hope in our life is, is he's saying turn the robes of your mind into running shorts. Put them into your legs, tuck them into your belt, and let the mind run. So if the mind is supposed to be active, according to Peter, what is the mind to be active with? What is it supposed to be active for? What's it supposed to be active into? Well, the answer to that question goes all the way back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, when Paul uses the exact same words, and he says, gird up, gird up the loins of your mind with what? What do you know? Truth. So when Peter says the mind should be active with something, what he's saying is that the mind should be active with the truth of Scripture. Paul uses the same words, and so we get this idea that we should let our minds be active in truth, and that is the means of sustaining full hope in God's grace. We should run with the truth of the Scripture. We should live with the truth of the Scripture. We should work with the truth of the Scripture. I, I, I don't know how to say this to you, but, 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 um, but the scripture is so vital in your daily existence and experience as a believer. I have a friend in this room, praise God, he's been so faithful to me to send scripture four days a week for the last two, three, four weeks, and it's been so encouraging. Your mind, Peter says, if hope is going to be activated in your heart and your life and the depths of your soul, your mind needs to be active in the truth of the scripture. Bury yourselves in it. And then he says the second way to activate hope, after he says to prepare your minds, the scripture then says, be fully sober. Be fully sober. I'm not talking about alcohol, and I don't think Peter is necessarily talking about alcohol in this passage, but he's talking about mental sobriety. He's talking about spiritual sobriety. He's talking about being alert, being able to evaluate things correctly so that the mind is not numb with intoxicating influences. Peter is, in essence, saying, don't let your mind drink in the things that numb the mind and the heart to the value of God's grace. We understand this. 
really well. I have a friend on my Facebook page, and honest to goodness, um, he posted a countdown to college football. The day college football started, he posted, honest to goodness, every single day for like 200 days straight until college football started. And now the college football, and by the way, I love college football. And now the college football has started, he posts like three times a day. My team is so-and-so. Oh, it's game day. Oh, I can't believe it. And I'm like, I'm like this, is, this is all. And I know, I know this brother. He's a believer. I'm like, this is all your mind is fixed on. This is exactly what Peter is talking about. When our mind is numbed, when our mind is fixed on, when our mind is intoxicated by something other than the grace of God. I don't mean uh, live the hard knock monk life. That's not what I'm talking about. Peter's not saying go off into the wilderness and ha- think nothing but of Jesus because he actually has a view of other people around us and how we live so that they understand the experience of grace through us. But Peter is saying, don't allow your mind to be drunk with other influences that numb yourself and numb your thoughts to the point where the grace of God cannot flow freely through your heart. Sex, money, career, power, romance, computers, gardening. (laughs) Know what numbs your mind. Know what numbs your mind to God and avoid it. Stay sober for the sake of full and passionate hope in God's grace. Peter is saying, don't be a moderate hoper. Don't just, just don't hope mildly. Engage your mind with the hope-producing truth of Scripture. This is the application from the first thought, like how do I sustain life? Well, well, Peter says, hope fully, and how do I do so? I engage my mind with the hope-producing truth of Scripture, and on the opposite side, I guard my mind from the hope-diminishing causes of the world. And so hope begins to be activated when our minds are prepared. But then Peter goes on to say in verse 15, if you'll read with me, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. Verse 16, for it is written, be holy in all that you do. Be holy because I am holy. One Christian author says that Christian living um, is is living that is permeated by God. We have this idea that as a Christian, um, it's not a, a Sunday deal, it's not a, 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 a once a month deal, a twice a year deal on Christmas and Easter, but, but the essence of Christianity is that our life is permeated by God. God in the morning, God in the midday, God in the evening, God is motive, God is guide, God is moral standard, God is comfort, God is strength, God is truth, God is joy. Our lives are permeated with God. So when we read John chapter 14, we have this idea um, that Jesus expresses when he says, in me, in God, in you. And he says it as many as 15 times just in John 15 alone. And so when we read the New Testament and we read Peter here, we have this idea that our Christian life is meant to be fully absorbed and intertwined in the life of God. But the present reality in the culture that we live in is that God is insignificant Yet scripture says God is everything. 
And the tension that we feel as believers living in a hostile culture where we are on the fringe. Peter says in verse 1 and 2 that we are actually aliens living in a hostile world. The tension that we feel where in the culture where God is insignificant, yet Scripture says God is everything, is, is how do we live in the midst of that tension. And Peter says how we live is separated, um, separated from what is defective and evil and separated for God and and that is the definition of what Peter calls holiness. So, so not only does he say live in hope, but he also says live in holiness. The New Testament tells us as believers to build our lives on the righteousness and the glory of God. So how does that play a part in our lives? Well, the scripture tells us in verse 14, he says, first of all, as obedient children. I don't know if this is your experience. I don't take it for granted in an auditorium with as many people that are here. That somebody walks into an auditorium and you hear about Jesus or you've heard about Jesus. You've been around church. Maybe you've seen something on TV, but you've never had an experience where God looked at you and you confessed who you were and God acknowledged that. And according to the book of John chapter 1 verse 12, he gave you the right to become a child of God. And Peter says the act of holiness is, is not just something you whip up as, as if it were just good deeds. Peter says the experience starts as, as Christ calls you as friend and his child. And that's what the first 12 verses were about here in this scripture. And so after he calls us as his child, then verse 14 says, do not conform. In essence, what's happening here is that we now, after we've become children of God, we now see things differently. Like Peter says, there, there was a former way of life that used to deceive us, and Peter uses the word, because we were ignorant. We did not know any better. We did not know there was another way of life to live that was hopeful and joyful and glad in Jesus. But once we came um, to a place of being a child of God where he looked at us and transformed our life, he said at that moment, we began to see things differently. I'm, not, I'm no longer deceived by the things I formerly was deceived by. Um, I have the Spirit of God that lives within me now that warns me and tells me that is not your best. And Peter says holiness begins as a child of God. It begins when we're not conformed by the world because now we see things differently. What do we know better? Mainly we know God. We now know God. We, we know the holiness of God. We know the value of God. Now by God's spirit, we're beginning to assess things as they really, really are. There's another man in this room this morning, and I've had phone conversations with him. And, and as he's, he's placed his faith in Jesus, he's beginning to talk like this. Like, like I, want to, I want to know what the gospel says about this situation. Uh, in all humility, I don't want to ignore something that I may not be seeing as a Christian that I should see. And that's how we should live. That's how we should talk as obedient children of Jesus. I no longer am fooled by my ignorant desires in my past. That's where holiness begins. And then in verse 14, Peter describes those desires. He says they are former desires. In other words, we obey God. We become obedient children. We now see the world as it really is. And then we obey God. We're not ignorant by the former desires. They're fading into the past. Obviously, we have to fight with them with truth, but they're not the defining power of our lives anymore. This is very important, and I don't, I don't have, uh, I got like four minutes, so this is really, 
this is really important as you get into the last, the, last, um, the last truth that Peter gives us about sustaining life in a culture that's hostile. So he says we must live in hope. He says we must live in holiness. But then he says we must live in fear. <laughs> uh, um, as I was preparing for this, I'm like, oh, gosh, nobody's going to listen to this point. And, um, and so, like, what do you mean, Pastor Matt? Like, like, I understand hope. I get it. That should be normative in the Christian experience. I get holiness because that's God and that's his attribute. And I should... I should live as God, um, but, but, I, but fear, what do you mean by fear? Like, like, like I shouldn't fear God, right? So verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, he says, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Um, and I don't have time to, to exegete this, but just hold on just for a moment. So in verse 18, what happens here is that Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed, this is an important word here, it's important in Christianity, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. This idea of redeemed gives us an idea that, that, that um, someone has paid a ransom in order to free somebody from a current way of life. And when we read that in the scriptures, we talk about redemption in the scriptures, we talk about it in two ways. Number one, we talk about it in terms of justification. In other words, God ransomed you from your sin by his death on the cross. And when we trust Christ for salvation, he justifies us. In other words, we can no longer be tried as guilty for our sin anymore. He has prepared an inheritance for us in heaven. He's preparing us for the inheritance in heaven. But the second way we talk about redemption in scripture is a word called sanctification. So God justifies us in the moment of salvation. He forgives us of our sin. But then he is preparing us to become like Jesus until the day we fully receive the inheritance. This goes back to the first 12 verses. And, but, but what's important in this passage is that Peter's not talking about uh, um, redemption in terms of the forgiveness of sins. He's talking about redemption in terms of, of the conduct of your life. Like, like Jesus forgave you of your sin. He paid a ransom so that you could go free in order that your conduct not be like the former desires of your life. And so when Peter talks about living um, your life as strangers on this earth and do so in reverent fear, Peter has this idea that, 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 if, that, if, that if our, life, if, if our lives um, are conducted in such a way that shows that the blood of Jesus is not precious to me, then I should fear. In other words... In other words, God's purpose in the blood of Jesus is our justification. It's our sanctification. It's for our pardon and our purity, and they cannot be separated. But we should fear if our conduct is in such a way that implies the blood of Jesus is impotent to hold us back from sin. Like if sin is the normal course of your life, if our lives are a constant witness to the powerlessness of the blood of Jesus to save us and forgive us, then can I say in all humility this morning, as I believe Peter would say, then Jesus is not really our hope and joy. And we don't belong in him. And that's a fearful prospect. And so Peter says, what sustains you is living in reverent fear, understanding 
understanding who you are made in Christ, that he's redeemed you, not just to forgive you of your sin, but to redeem your former way of conduct. Don't confuse this with a Catholic idea of salvation or, or, or a cultish way of salvation where I do something, I work my way for salvation Fully understand what he's saying here. There's a watershed moment in your life. You've been saved, but after that watershed moment, there's a process called sanctification where you become like Jesus. And if your life continues to look like the former life, then you should fear because you may not be in Jesus. Unholy fear runs away from the judgment on sin. And we hide in excuses we look for safety and moral and religious camouflage. Like we come to church, we come to church, but we run away from our sin. That's unholy fear. That's unholy fear. Unholy fear also looks like this. It, it ignores the preciousness of the ransom and trembles at the judgment of God. Unholy fear runs away from the one who judges those and those who don't fully hope in God. But this is what holy fear looks like. Holy fear runs away from the sin itself. And looks for safety in the pardoning and empowering grace of God. Holy fear runs from not hoping in God into the arms of the judge, your father, who is also your father. Holy fear cherishes the ransom and trembles at the prospect of insulting the goodness of the one who paid your ransom. Peter says, live in hope. He says, live in holiness. And he says, live in in fear. I want to pray for us this morning, and we're going to head out and celebrate together in baptism, but I hope this morning that, that if, if you're like, I, I, I would like a little more, you can email me, and I'll be happy to send my notes to you from this message, because uh, I got seven pages, and that was like four, okay? And I would love to share that with you. Let me pray for us. If you're getting baptized, will you do me a favor? You can just head out right now. Go ahead and get ready, and then we're going to meet you up top in about seven minutes, okay? Jesus, thank you for the price that you paid, God. It was not free. It was costly, Jesus. It cost your life. It cost your blood to redeem us, God, to ransom us. God, you paid a ransom on our behalf God, to transform our lives once and for all in a, in a moment that was watershed, God, that was a yes or no moment. God, thank you for that. Jesus, also thank you for your redeeming grace, Lord, that, that, that follows with us, that walks with us, Jesus. God, as we continue a process of becoming just like you. God, I pray this morning, there are people in this auditorium that are working through difficult scenarios and circumstances and struggles. God, I pray that living in hope, living in holiness, living in fear is a great encouragement today. Jesus, thank you for your scriptures. It's not obligatory this morning. It's life-giving, and for that, we thank you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Everybody in the Colony Theater said... Amen. Amen. Okay, look at me real quick. As everybody is leaving to head out for baptism, here's what we're going to do. Um, if you, uh, it's 1140. You can grab your kids if you want. Um, if you go out this, uh, this hallway and then you go out the door to the um, 
parking garage. You're going to take a left. It's literally like 20 steps towards this way, and there's a, like, a, like five steps that goes up into a parking level that's uncovered. We've got the pool out there, and I think we're baptizing seven or eight people today, and we're really, really excited to do so, and we want you to celebrate with us, okay? All right. God bless you. See you guys in seven minutes.